American Gods is an exciting new cerebral fantasy series airing on stars, and the task of creating the gorgeous worlds of mythology is so gigantic that it actually takes two showrunners to get the job, or should I say jobs, done. Brian Fuller and Michael Green are co-showrunning American Gods, and if you ask them, it's not a glamorous task. It is the dumbest job in the world because you have to fight for things. Everything. Everything, and you're not saving lives. This is Showrunners. I'm Kim Renfro, a culture reporter at Insider. A showrunner does a lot of things, from directing to writing to making sure the right kind of paper cups are on set. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows we love. On this episode of Showrunners, I chat with Brian Fuller and Michael Green about their love for Neil Gaiman's original American Gods novel, what happens when trying to save $500,000 winds up costing you $2 million anyways, and how this whole big project first came to be. Okay, so first I want to talk about American Gods and how the whole project came together and how YouTube wound up being co-showrunners. I, I I was working on the final, or the, what I thought was going to be the final season of Hannibal, uh, season two, and Neil Gaiman came up to Toronto to have a conversation about his book. And we talked about all the wonderful themes of immigration and strangers in strange lands trying to make their way in America. And he said, would you like to be the showrunner of uh, American Gods? And I said, yes, if I can do it with Michael Green. Uh, Brian and I had been friends for quite some time, a really long time now we discovered because we did the math and it was sad. Uh, But since first season of Heroes where we had a great time and got on really well. Yeah, 10 years ago. And remain fans of each other, rooting for each other's work and always trying to find a way to work together again. And I had just spent... Two years that were fun but disappointing, uh, trying to write network pilots uh, uh, for 20th Century Fox, where I really enjoyed working with all the executives there, but came to that, that realization that what I, what's coming out of my pen doesn't work on network television, um, which was liberating but also a little disappointing because I'd spent two years trying to get things on network television. And uh, Brian called me and said, do you like American Gods? And the answer was an emphatic yes. And... Uh, couldn't say us fast enough. So we met, I think, the next day and just started talking about what we loved about the book, and they were all the same things. And the chance to work together again, I would have done on anything, but to do it on one of my favorite books, even even better. So when did you first read the book, American Gods? Uh, we both found it in paperback, is what we discovered. <laughs> so like a year after it came out, so probably 2002. And when we sat down to have that conversation, I hadn't reread it, but we had the benefit of being able to say, what do you remember about it from the first reading? So here it is, you know, X number of teen years later, and uh, it's a book I remembered very vividly. And we wrote down, like, here are the things that stood out before even sitting down to reread it carefully for an adaptation. Were there any roadblocks or anything that you came up against once you went back and did that close read? The road was one of the biggest challenges for the adaptation because uh, in order to run an efficient television production... We need standing sets that we go back to and the crew understands and knows how to shoot effectively. And American Gods is a road show and a sprawling one at that. So that really was the biggest challenge of, of this production was not having a home, 
to you know lay down our our, our equipment and <laughs> our dolly tracks and it was always about running out finding the best locations or building them and that that level of detail on an episodic budget and episodic schedule was really challenging yeah once the hammers started swinging in construction they just never it, stopped for months in the show adaptation wise I, I, we never really struggled script wise i mean it was fun it was I mean, it was fun writing with Brian. I think at one point you're like, of course it's fun. You only have to write 25 pages, not 52. Because we'd be splitting stuff and it was always fun to get each other's pages and read them and enjoy them and be able to just say you love them and hear some thoughts and we can cut this and add this. But um, How do you guys decide how to divvy up different parts of the script? Whoever had a particular affinity to, or to scene would say, I, I kind of have a grasp on this, but really we passed our work back and forth and would either do passes or write notes in the margins or, you know, what about this idea? Or for Michael, I was usually suggesting cuts and for Michael, he was usually suggesting ads. So uh, we have uh, different styles of writing that are very compatible. So you guys mentioned that there were parts of the original book that you sort of vividly remembered. Were any of those particularly hard to adapt for a script for a TV show? I mean, it's all kind of exciting to bring to life. Like, you know, the Ian's first day, Ian McShane playing Mr. Wednesday's first day was the, his, his first scene with Shadow. This six, page, six and a half page scene where they're seated and just like parked and it's just going to be, we're relying on dialogue and performances. And remembered reading it in the book the first time, remembered when we wrote those scenes, hearing a thousand actors auditioning for Shadow, reading versions of that scene, you know, and then watching those two characters meet for the first time was really fun and thrilling, and Neil was there. That was one of Neil's high-level visitation fly-in days, and uh, even uh, Musa, who plays the djinn, uh, was coming in for a wardrobe fitting that day because we were going to go to his stuff in a day or two, and he was like, he came with his copy of the author's preferred text, and he's like, do you think Neil will sign it? I'm like, I think Neil will sign the djinn's book. Yes. <laughs> yes, happily did, happily will. So I don't know, there was a lot of just fan excitement on my part of just like, oh, look, we built the crocodile bar. And then, of course, in the case of the crocodile bar, oh, look, we built it twice. <laughs> so how involved is Neil in the actual production of the show now? Neil saw all the dailies, uh, every outline, every script, gave us feedback. He was uh, involved in the casting process. We sent him auditions. We would consult with him. Uh, whenever we did cast somebody or it was an offer situation and, and we had uh, uh, called him and said, what do you think about Ian McShane for Wednesday? And he said, I like it, he's bastardy. And that was a, an interesting story in and of itself because we had originally offered Chernabog to, to Ian and Ian, who'd worked with Michael in the past, had a conversation with him and said, this role is great, but he leaves. Uh, what about this Wednesday guy? And that was all it took. Yeah, so Neil, uh, it wasn't so much that he had approval over casting. It was more that we would talk to him while we were still thinking about it because we wanted his input. We wanted his, uh, if, if he had a, an instinct for or against a certain direction, that meant a lot to us. So I want to talk about the term showrunner because I feel like people who maybe aren't as obsessively following TV news or inside the industry, they don't recognize that term right away as something the way that they do executive producer or writer or director. So how would you define your job as a showrunner, or in this case, showrunners, on American Gods? 
A showrunner is essentially responsible for the vision of the, the production and is directing the 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 directors uh, and the actors and the department heads and kind of is the last stop for the overall aesthetic and value of, of the production. So it's, it's the stupidest job in the world because it's impossible to do in the time permitted under the circumstances permitted because you're expected to be so many different places, juggling so many different things. And as co-showrunners, we found, uh, particularly on this production, that it wasn't the two of us splitting a job as much as it was the two of us doing a four-person job that actually requires that many people to to wrangle to the ground. And it, it is... The, it is the dumbest job in the world because you have to fight for things. Everything. Everything. And you're not saving lives. There is a quote, I think it's Mike Shore, who's an amazing showrunner and created some of my favorite shows that I look forward to watching, um, most recently The Good Place, uh, who defined the job. It's, it's showrunning as three full-time jobs plus problems because you're, it's, you're constantly... Breaking, you know, story department, which is writing, you know, breaking stories, keeping the scripts coming, oftentimes writing or rewriting every single script, prepping, you know, and then production and all the exigencies that go with that, and post. And they're often, if not always, going on simultaneously. On a show like this, we had a bit of advantage of certain parts of the three-ring circus were broken up. There was a period where we were mostly in post. But there were certainly times when we, and, and but that was no easier uh, on this particular show. So, anytime someone's running a show, it's always best where you, when you have more hands. And people who run shows alone end up of necessity and with a lot of gratitude um, delegating to strong right hands. They'll have either other EPs or co EPs who they treat as partners. And you have to because there's just too much to get done. A show that has any degree of ambition, and I'll define that as anything other than what the industry of network television developed around. I mean, um, you need more than one person. And I can define that as sort of the, in drama, it's cops, lawyers, doctors, you know, general procedural or standard soap. You can run a show like that normally because that's what it was built around, standing sets, set number of actors, set number of days, and just a formula for how things are mechanically accomplished. And for and, this particular show, it was uh, no shortage of tasks to be done. It's, it's an interesting time for a number of reasons. Um, the amount of filmmaking you can put into a show that is appreciated by the audience has gone up. It's allowed us to, I mean, in a way, the, the job Brian's been describing and, and what our seven days a week have been for the last few months is closer to a feature director finishing a movie. Ideally, we'd like to be in the room together because there'll be something where it's like, we have to gut check with each other where it's like, is this too far? And uh, so that's the ideal. Um, but oftentimes we have to, we, those four things are happening simultaneously. So we have to split up. And so we're, we're constantly circling each other as we're going to the different aspects of, of the post-production process. Yeah, our text exchanges is a long list of like shorthand of, you know, 
description of the latest iteration of a visual effect shot and what's gone further and what needs work. Um, one of the things I try to uh, be conscious of, um, I, I've had the experience of working for partners and one of the frustrations uh, that people can have when you work for people who, you know, when there's a showrunner team, is getting caught between the two-headed hydra of one person told you one thing and the other person comes and tells you the exact opposite, and you're the team you've hired, you know, they've hired to help them is suddenly like, ah, they don't know, what to, we don't know what to do, which is it? And being uncomfortable and sort of shutting down and shorting out. So I, I, I've learned to see the distressed look, like you can see the cortisol level spikes if I give a note, and and then I can just kind of say. Did Brian say something to the contrary? And then I can call, you know, he and I can then discuss it on the side because you just want to make sure that the artists you've hired to do things are clear and ready to action things. And giving uh, one message. Yeah, giving one message. And sometimes that means he and I, Brian and I have to have the quick conversation of basically who's more passionate about their view is usually how we def decide things. Um, Whoever cares most wins. Yeah. Uh, and that's just a matter of wanting to support each other's vision for things and who has a clear vision. and. It's, it's nice to have that gut check because sometimes you, you have an idea that only gets you through the day and your partner can have the idea that closes out the episode. Uh, so speaking of that sort of gut check, have we taken it too far feeling, I really wanted to talk to you guys about the violence on the show because in the very opening scene, there's an arm that gets caught off holding a sword that sort of flies through the air and it's this very violent but also sort of comedic moment. So... Where do you guys decide to draw the line when it comes to that sort of bloody violence? That was actually, you know, uh, uh, one of the earlier, not necessarily a bone of contention, but something that we had been repeatedly asked to take out. And uh, we felt very strongly that that was tonally allowing the audience to be amused by what we were presenting as opposed to saying, no, no, this is a very serious world and a very serious war. We wanted that, that absurdity and heightened sense of of almost Python-esque humor with the violence. and Because we weren't trying to depict history in any way, and we wanted that clear, that this was someone's depiction. History in the same way that Monty Python depicts history, yeah. you know, was, was our, our approach. And so the the violence really, it's, 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 it's sort of amusing to me when, when people complain about the violence in the story of gods because that's all there ever has been in these stories. Take a peek at the Old Testament. There's you know, violence, bloodshed, sacrifice are all poetic expressions of our faith bargain with, with the gods that we choose to worship. So we needed a bit of that represented in the show to really set the stakes of what people fight for and who hasn't heard of a religious war. So I poo-poo the complaints of violence. Uh, it, there was one thing we toned down, but not for uh, any reason of feeling like we'd gone too far. David Slater, director for that episode in the first three uh, as a group. Uh, there was one point when we were adding visual effects blood where he said, oh, I'm only halfway there. I want to do a whole other layer. They're building a whole other CG element of blood to do here. And we actually said, partly because at the time we were fighting budget, but also the image that we had was so beautiful and interesting and weird that we're just like, you have enough blood, sir. You know? <laughs> um, and and it, it was for me more um, 
sometimes we have to say to, to people, we like the work you've done so much, I have to protect it from the work you'd like to do. Uh, so you just mentioned CGI blood, but was there physical blood on set as well for these scenes? In that sequence specifically, I think there's three different types of blood. There's physical blood, there's guys with buckets on the side. There's, there's projectile can blood pump. cannons mm -hmm. that, that pump geysers of blood. And, and then we have the CG elements and there were different styles that I, I think were actually from different houses. Like, you know, they these are the ones that are sort of ballet slippers of blood. These are the ones that are spray. And we would actually have conversations in later episodes about which types of blood, like we have uh, a sequence in the top of our sixth episode where um, we have immigrants crossing the Rio Grande to come into America and bringing Jesus with them and some violence ensues. And our first pass from the visual effects department where they were adding the CG blood to it, used the Viking blood and it was a much more serious scene. And we, we had to kind of scale it back and say, no, 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 that's the wrong element. We can't, we don't want any giggles. This is actually harrowing. Whereas we specifically designed the blood in the Viking sequence to be bright to, to, to kind of give a remove from the violence so that you could watch it and sort of like, you know, I can't believe we're doing this kind of reaction. Whereas the, uh, that, the blood in the um, immigrant story was going to be grounded, um, upsetting. And that takes a different palette. It has to move differently and it's just literally a different build. Um, another element of the show that I really wanted to talk about was how you sort of updated the technology because there's the technical boy who is the god and instead of having him physically be in a limo, you sort of did a whole virtual reality thing with Shadow in the pilot episode. So how did you guys make that decision to go in a totally different technology direction for the show now versus what Neil did in his original book? In, in the production design of the show, we wanted something quasi-futuristic for the, the technical boys' limousine. And when the network saw the dailies, they were like, we just wanted it to look like a regular limousine. And our response was, it's a technical boy. It has to be a special limousine. And they said, well, this feels more like a virtual reality environment. And if you're going to do that, you should do a virtual reality environment. But we... And they we, said that to try to convince us to reshoot it in an actual limo. Yeah. yeah. And we said, uh, that's a great idea. We should make this all virtual reality. And we have the capacity to do that. And this is how we would do that. And they're like, that wasn't why we brought that up. We want you to do the, the standard limo. And it took some convincing, but it actually, it was, they gave us a great idea to, to double down on the technical boy's abilities and the, the vocabulary that he uses to interact with, with those that he worships and those that he commands, and or those that he abducts. Yeah, they ultimately really liked the idea. Uh, there was a moment there where they felt like we were just being brats, and maybe there was a moment there where we were just being brats. I don't think so. But I think no, we both were no, like, we were like that, let's just go. That's great. Kind of fun. We should do that. And it actually informed a lot of the decisions that came after, because I remember that um, we were building in with the visual effects department, what the face hugger would look like. Right. The thing that jumps on Shadow's face and transported him into it. And they're like, well, since VR, let's put these little eyes on it and they're gonna push the light into their head. And it just got more delightful for right. me. And then we, um, the idea of that entire world being 3D printed out, including the technical boy. So it just informed our imagination for the rest of it.
Uh, you talked about how when you write, you write separately and then send each other scripts that you then read over. But what is your actual writing process like? Like, are you laptop guys? Do you need a desktop to set up? What's your writing process? I like to be alone and carve out hours where I could be undisturbed thinking about the story and what people are going to be saying within it. And, and you know, it's, it's a process of self-hypnosis where you have to consider who this person is that's walking into this room, what they want, and what's the first thing that's going to come out of their mouth. And so it, it requires a certain sense of stillness and solitude. Uh, so that's rare when you're running a show too, just to, to carve out some time. So sometimes in the, in the show running process, we will end our daily production meetings at eight and then write till two or three in the morning and then start our production days or our story breaking days again. So as I said, it's the stupidest job in the world mm -hmm. and you have homework every day and uh, it's dumb. It's a, like I'm just yeah, because writing choices, writing, my life choices. Writing alone is is I mean, writing as a job on its in and of itself should be the job. Yeah, and it, it's and is the is 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 one good solid job. Yeah, and I, I can't. How many times have I turned you and said, "Yeah, work is getting in the way of work today," uh, because as a dispositional writer, producing is always like this thing that's intruding on. You know, the script is the first principle. And people will be like, where's the script? Where's the script? And, well, you made me have a four-hour meeting with you today, so there's no script. So sometimes you have to chase people away or leave work unfinished. Again, you know, with as many things you have to do in a day show running, you know, getting 80% of what you were supposed to get done done is like a great day because there's always a monstrous list. And it's like, yeah, 70%? Okay, I'll take that win. And no, no day is possible. Yeah. There is There's, never a day that is possible. Because there are all these artists you've hired who are waiting for some time with you to go over the work that they've prepared for it. And you have to have an internal mechanism to wait necessity and say, I'm sorry, you know, like uh, how many times have I said to like art department, you're the priority tomorrow or today you're the priority. And but right I'm secretly now you're thinking, the priority. Right now you're the priority. And what I'm secretly thinking is I want to get this over quickly so I can go right because that's what feels, always feels like the thing that needs to get done. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I've always romanticized having like writer habits, like you have to have, you know, my mug is in its spot and there's, it's on the special doily that my grandmother gave me and the, you know, my lamp is on and it had just on the right setting. And I, I, I've never- Just leave me alone. Yeah, I, right now- <laughs> Somewhere, anywhere. What all I really need now in terms of process is like t the sanctity of time. I can I can write upside down in the bathtub, you know, if, if there's two hours. It's more about, I don't actually write in the bathtub. Like, I, I remember watching Trumbo and thinking how, like, they keep trying to romanticize his writing process. I'm like, fuck you. It's just about, like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you, you don't need those things you think you need. You don't need the special writing program. You don't need the special pens. You just uh, need alone time. You need alone time. Was there a point when you felt like you did need those things? Uh, before I started actually writing. You know, I, I, people who get caught up in the ritual of it. And oh, I, I hear people, all, you know, people starting out all the time talking about how they're still doing the research for the project they want to do. It's like, you, you've done enough. I'm, I assure you, you've thought about it enough if you can list the six books you intend to read still. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading while you're writing, but just, just do the writing. Stop doing the things to prep you for the writing. 
I actually kind of, one, one of my favorite ways to write is kitchen table with a good amount of chaos around me. But, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's just a you know, personal struggle. I like being around it so it's there, but the people who love you that are making that noise think you're still a person. It's like, no, 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 I'm here. I'm furniture right now. Like, you, I can't actually answer you. Or when someone asks me a question, there's that like eight second time delay of where the sound has to penetrate <laughs> depending how far I am in myself. And then I have to like re-engage but also make the mental note of what of where what passage I'm on and where I left off that thought, and my family, God bless them, has has learned to understand that Daddy's special, <laughs> you know, like that there's a, meaning there's something wrong with him, and you just have to give, you know, Daddy's a very slow robot, um, uh, and and sometimes needs recharging. I just have a poster of The Shining in my office, <laughs> and every time my partner comes in to talk to me, I just point at it. Yeah, and like like if I'm in here. If you hear me typing, <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, yeah. My wife has been with me long enough that you know I, I can just say to her in the shorthand of like, I'm not actually here. And okay, you know, she she understands that, and that's so that's always an. I, I've had that conversation with a number of writers, and Brian, I talk about all the time the the people who love you and want you to be a person when you're not, because uh, it's the, the stupidest job in the world. It's the stupidest job in the world, and and there's a huge difference between what kind of person you are actually and the stuff that comes out of your pen. And so you have to kind of access a person that you're not often, and th there's a remove there. So that eight-second delay is remembering how to be you again for a second. So where do you think that other person comes from? Like, when do, when do you first remember recognizing that part of yourself that was a writer? Well, I think it's always there because whether you know, the, the, the blessing and the curse of being a writer is that you can work anywhere. So... I went to a musical last night on Broadway <laughs> and about halfway through it, I started working because <laughs> I just Tune out and looked at the ceiling and was like, okay, we need this. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a blessing and a curse. Uh, so you can be uh, at a dinner and you can start working or you can be at a party and you can start working or you can be taking a stroll and you can be working because all you need is your brain to work out some story and do the preparation work for when you sit down and start committing things to paper. So that's, it, it, it's hard to shut off the job in that aspect. But, but there, there are times just as a writer where you, you know, I remember early on, just like you write something and you suddenly tap into a voice you didn't know was there. And you're like, oh, what happens if I push that? It's like, oh, there's a gear. It's something I'd say to young writers starting out is you, you, you might not be the writer you think you are because when you start, you write the things you've always liked. And just because you like something doesn't mean that's what comes out of your singing voice. You find out what kind of singer you are. I remember Harry Connick Jr. Uh, once I saw him like on Jay Leno 10,000 years ago telling a story. Maybe I even remember it wrong but I'll attribute it to him, saying that when he grew up, he wanted to be a rock and roll star and he couldn't wait to like be a rock and roll star and then he like started singing and now comes this crooner voice, like, well, I guess I do that. And that's, there's, there's a lesson in that. Find out what voice you have and go do that and get really good at that. And if you want to become another type of writer, you, some writers can train themselves to become a different type. I've I certainly done different genres and wanted to get better at doing something, so you become the writer who can write the thing that you're interested in. Other writers are not versatile. That doesn't make you better or worse. Uh, if you double down on the thing you're great at and you love, you are the luckiest person. You're, you're a much luckier writer than someone who keeps wanting to reinvent their voice. Uh, it's not better or worse. It's also like there's a lot of um, 
in television, there's a lot of fetishizing of who's fast. And being fast does not mean good. Fast does not mean good. And brilliant does not mean fast or slow. I know wonderful, amazing, brilliant writers whose work I admire who are like good for one script a year or two years. And then I know mediocre writers who take the same amount of time. And I know brilliant writers who can write very, very quickly. And I know brilliant writers. There's no correlation between speed. That's just disposition. That's just weird Venn diagram shit. Just like show running is the weird Venn diagram shit of managerial skills and writing skills and like where they overlap. You can now have this stupid job, which you shouldn't take. I mean, so what I'm hearing is that you two are never going to show run again by yourselves. I'm sure we will, but I will absolutely miss, you know, having someone to do this interview with or break a story. And, and look, um, writing process American God has been different for me than anything else I've worked on because before I go into a scene, if, if I have a problem or I'm not sure what it's about, I have someone to go to and it costs Brian creatively nothing to fix my problems. He doesn't know this, but he's saved me weeks of, you know, when we're in a scene, uh, you know, and I'm off in my office and I'm supposed to get it. I can go like, I know what I'm stuck on. I can go to him and go, so he'll be like, and he'll forget we've even had the conversation, but he will have cracked the problem I have and I can go do that. Without that, that's three days of just like, God damn it, I suck. So I hope I can. You don't suck. No, not with you around. Um, It's it's definitely more fun uh, doing it this way. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's good to have someone who's been there with you because like so many ridiculous things happen and we have a, someone who's had the experience with us who can just be like, remember that time it was really stupid? Yeah, I remember that time, it was really stupid. Is there anything that you get to delegate to the other person that you wouldn't want to do if you were show running by yourself? I love that Michael engages with the network in the studio. (laughs) Because that's like, I'll be like, I'm happy to go hide on the mix stage and toil away in there if you will just go take that call. <laughs> uh, and, and I will sometimes use that as an excuse to go home and like put the kids to bed and then come back to the mix stage after. So, um, you know, when you when you have someone that you trust with literally any part of the show and are thrilled for them to do anything, it's it's more, what do you that day have more of a disposition to do? So sometimes in the right, it's the same thing like looking at a script and looking at scenes oh, you've got that in your teeth, great, because I don't. And if it was just me alone, I would have had to find a way to get that in my teeth. Um, similarly, when there's 40 things to do that day, like I've looked at a screen so much, I don't want to look at visual effects right now because I am just I don't have any more filter <laughs> to be able to take it in. Because you, you have to, in the showrunner mentality, engage a certain level of hypercriticism to direct people and where they need to go, whether it's visual effects or sound design or color timing or even script writing, you have to you have to entertain the hypercritical self toward a just to make the the product better or as good as it can be. I have been in those VFX sessions and like drink my water much faster to generate a pee break to get like five minutes to just be able to get my brain back. Uh, and this show in particular there's a density to it that neither of us have ever experienced before. I mean, most shows, even the very elaborate shows we've done in the past, would have a few sequences per episode or two episodes that require that level of detail, uh, where where all hands on deck have to figure out how to accomplish that one special moment. American Gods, because, and it's something we set out to do, every scene is that. 
every episode has dozens of moments like that. So and there's a density of insanity in it. And in those moments, I've now gotten to the point where it's like, well, we did it to ourselves. Yeah. Like, oh, no, we, we have no one like, to blame but ourselves. Yeah. If anything, you know, uh, our network in the studio... Make uh, it smaller. Don't do as much. And we were like, no, no. we got to do the book. And, and they were never doing it out of fear or malice or cheapness. It was like, you know, stars, there, the people there come out with a wealth of production experience. And I remember early on when we gave them just outlines, the response was, we love it. If you can pull off half of this, we'll be thrilled. And we pulled off about like 60, 70% of it. More, I'd say you know. 80%. Yeah. I mean, some of it we then self production once, we did. Once we like threw things away and redid them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because some things we did bite off more than we could chew, or we chewed wrong, uh, or we and chewed, choked. Yeah. And, and certainly did. And that's, but they did give us the room to make our own mistakes a lot of times, or believed us when we said we've got this covered, and we thought we did. And sometimes, most of the time, we did. Um, so American Gods has been particularly difficult that way. So the idea of two showrunners being able to do it, I, I believe truly has yielded the better product. Because I can imagine what the show would look like if it was all yours and I would have loved it. And I can imagine what the show might have looked like if it was all mine. And I hope I would have loved it. Um, but I don't. I, neither is as interesting to me as what we've made up. The show because, needed both of us. It, because I can be surprised by it. And uh, well, I am surprised by it constantly. What do you each think would be different about American Gods if you weren't there? There would certainly be more shit jokes if I was writing it without you. Um, I think I can be much coarser than you. Brian's a much more refined creature. Um, I, I was raised Catholic, so shit jokes are part and parcel of my, <laughs> my vocabulary. Yeah. We've always liked each other's material, and there is a different voice that grew out of us knowing we are writing for each other. Well, it's a harmony. Yeah. It really is uh, a, a harmonization of two voices that are different that can uh, do great taste that taste great together. <laughs> but, uh, Kurt Vonnegut had a great passage about how when you're writing, you should be writing for one person, that if you try to write for everyone, it's going to be a disaster, and that in, you know, when he thought long and hard about it, he was always writing for his sister even after she died, which I always found very sweet. And on everything I've written, I, I, I realize the better things I'm subconsciously writing for, whether it's a director, whether it's, you know, and I'm writing these to delight Brian. The scenes I write. No, and and, and th when there, there's that sensor of like we start writing because we're hoping to make each other laugh or interest, keep each other's interest enough, so that we will both work as hard as it needs to. We need to work to actualize these because this show, more so than anything else either of us have ever worked on, uh, it isn't just you give it to production and then they go and shoot it on the sound stage. Every scene requires so much creation and seeing Attention. through. And, and I'm actually nervous about season two because now we're a little wiser about everything we write, how hard it's going to be. I'm yeah. actually more clear on season two because I know the things that we touched that burnt and hurt us. <laughs> and uh, what was the thing that you touched that burnt and hurt you? Just in terms of tonally what worked for the show, mm -hmm. where we, I, I think it wasn't until we had seen the footage of uh, episode four uh, that we realized what the show wanted to be and what it was telling us we could do with a bit of magic and a lot of character. And there were episodes where we 
push too far too early and cut them out and uh, destroyed that footage because it was before the show spoke back to us. We know what not to eat for breakfast. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, the, uh, the, oatmeal, I'm thinking. <laughs> the, the relationship between... Uh, the, the, the hardest thing to get right on a show like this is the transition from reality to magical. Uh, how do you hold the audience's hand so that they can believe it? Because Neil's writing, Neil Gaiman's writing, what I always love about it is it always makes you believe in magic because he holds your hand in the transition. Uh, and you can name that and see that in any of his books. Visually, that's, I think, even harder to do because people are filtering, you know, their bullshit meter is up and they're looking like, what type of magic do you want us to believe in? Is it, are we, you know, and people are constantly, when they hear what the show is about, uh, trying to relate it to, so is it Harry Potter type of magic? Is it X-Men type of magic? And the answer is neither. It's going to be its, its own tone. It doesn't really compare. So the same process Brian was describing in production, we had the comparatively micro version of just in script development. I mean, I remember an outline of a potential episode four where like, let's try this. And it was a magical ship exploded out of a Wednesday's pocket and oh, yeah. erupted oh into God, a parking yeah. lot. And at the time it was like, yeah, it'll be amazing. And we, because that day we, with, with the writers we were working with and uh, got very excited about going, what, what if we went Harry Potter with this? And what if we went Middle Earth with this? And you kind of have to wiggle the loose tooth uh, to see, and it, but when you, we saw that on paper, we quickly, not quickly, three days later, I mean, we shared that with the studio. And we were like, yeah, we think we might. And you wiggled the tooth the wrong way and it hurts. And, and, and then th that's early times the show starts speaking back to you and says, no, 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 this isn't, that's not what we're doing. Everything about that particular episode ultimately went away. Yeah. And what we... We kept trying to bridge a gap that was really just a short step. We, we had a similar experience at the very end where we, we were just having production overextending and uh, budget overextending. And we took our nine episode arc and realized we can end it at episode eight in a really interesting way. And it's funny for writers who work so hard and fret so much over putting things down and creating things from whole cloth so that you can work on them. It's incommensurate the sense of relief you get when you jettison large chunks I mean, I don't know, if, like, I remember when we talked about cutting that episode or even when we talked about... The last episode. The last episode especially, the weight that came off, like, I remember breathing and going... I remember your exhale because we were, yeah. like, that was when I was pacing on the yeah, lawn. I was and in I my was living like, room. Okay, to reiterate, we do this, 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 and this, and then we don't need to do this. And, and there we was can a long this pause, moment I heard your breath, yeah. and <laughs> you said, I think that works. And just the idea of, like, we cannot do all this stuff. It's like canceling a wedding. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we don't have to go and do that. Uh, it, it, it's funny that, that how much relief that gives us. And same thing with, we don't have to try to fix <clears throat> what's broken in an episode. We can just get rid of it. And uh, we were lucky enough, our network and studio, which you know, studio especially stands to lose a lot by having significantly less product, wanted the better show. Just going back to show running uh, as more of an abstract concept. Whenever you're trying to do something that isn't replicating things that have worked in the past on other shows, <clears throat> the only way it can be done is if you have, if all your benefactors, your network, your studio, you know, your, your, your person partners and your home base have to agree on the same thing. If you have a show where the studio wants one thing and the network wants one thing and you want a third, you're fucked before you even start. 
So yeah, it, learning how to make your own show. Uh, this all goes back to something we've been talking about. The, the idea of a straight-to-series show is it's something that everyone thinks is the greatest thing in the world, and it's not. It's, it's stupid. It, it's really stupid. We, and and um, we did something incredibly stupid uh, in our production that we regretted instantly, and everyone did. But when we were... Um, our original production plan was we were going to be shooting our first three episodes with one director, uh, David Slade. But we were going to shoot the first episode first, take two weeks off, and assemble it and look at it and just breathe. And then we were going to shoot our second two episodes, uh, second and third episode after. But course correct. Giving him chance to prep the, 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 the third episode. And seeing if we need to replace any crew, seeing if any cast was an issue. Um, uh, just, just giving ourselves like a pilot moment, as it were. And we realized that our budget was astronomically over. And one of the things that was put on the table that we decided to pull out was that two-week break. Let's just go straight through. And crossboarding two episodes is Herculean. It's nearly impossible. And most television directors can barely pull off that. And we started trying to pull off crossboarding three. And we knew it was a problem. And, and one of those episodes had no prep time because yeah. it was completely taken away from so our poor director was going into an episode that he wasn't given the time to prepare to shoot. So every time we showed up on set, he was scrambling because we put him in that situation in order to try to save money. And it ended up costing us so much more. In reshooting. uh, And once again, we, we are responsible for that situation because we agreed that we would have to cut those things in order to save money. But once again, in order to save this amount of money, you are spending four times that later to fix it. And in the effort to save $500,000, we ended up spending $2 million to fix it. And that that falls to the showrunners because it's the studio's obligation to suggest those things. And it's it's on us to filter... This is a good way of saving things. This is a bad way. And we made a lot of yeah. bad way decisions to save money. It ended up costing us a lot more. Is that a time where it's kind of nice to have someone else, another showrunner there to shoulder maybe some of the blame? It does, you know, it does help to sort of turn to Michael and say, we fucked up, uh, as opposed to like, I fucked up. Yeah, or, it's like, oh, know. we sure did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody's trying to do the show as efficiently as possible and everybody is aware that it is a big budget show and no matter how big your budget is, it is never enough and you have to make cuts and you have to try to find solutions to issues that you couldn't ever anticipate. Uh, and you're, you're also learning the crew you have and what they're capable of and every crew is different. And how long it takes them to do something. Mm-hmm. And when we got into the physical production of this show, which has very particular demands in terms of aesthetic qualities, they would say, this is what we would do on a standard seven-day shoot in order to get it done, but it will not be up to your standards. And uh, we kept on flirting with those issues, and I think we were well aware of what was coming, but we just had no choice but to try to save that money. And, you know, there were there were many aspects of that. The, the crocodile bar story that, that Michael referenced earlier, we completely rebuilt the set after we had shot it, built it, shot the scenes or a couple of scenes in it. And when we arrived on set, 
the paint was still wet and we had only seen it the day before because everything was under tarps and they couldn't show us because nothing was done. Uh, and the day before it was like, oh my God, what can you do in the next 24 hours to fix this? And then when we arrived the next day and it wasn't fixed enough, we were in the situation of knowing full well that none of this was going to make it to air because it looked terrible. And, and, and by terrible, it meant it didn't feel believable within the world we were trying to create. It had a much more um, amusement park feel when what we were looking for. It looked was like, like a children's show. It, we, we said it was Pee Wee <laughs> yeah. Herman. And yeah. um, it's funny, like that, a picture of that set was one of our first leaked pictures, Entertainment Weekly. And in the and photo, we're like, it's like, ah! we're like, no, it's not good. It's going to be much better. When we were looking for something that was much more like Bayou chic. Yeah, it looks like. I mean, it looks like that bar could be like in the basement of a New York hotel or something. Now we want to serve beer there. And that was that was something that we both felt very strongly. I remember in our first, when we sat down uh, to talk about the show, I sketched out the mm-hmm. croco- Crocodile Bar set in, in terms of what we wanted to see. And, and we worked on it together. And then we worked with illustrators to, to bring it to life. And then uh, that didn't happen. And so it was all about trying to get it back to the original illustration that Michael and I created. And, and I think our final note was when, when it was rebuilt is these illustrations, we want you to build the illustration. Just, just build this picture. Which and, we'd been saying for months. Yes, yeah, and it, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was a process. Well, I hope you guys get lots of rest in the weeks to come. And I'm really excited that people are actually going to get to watch the product of all this hard work that you've been doing and experience the show. We hope everybody enjoys the show. And uh, it's, you know, we're, we're definitely very proud of everyone's work on it. And from cast to crew and our fantastic post team that is working every waking moment to try to land the plane on a finale that has more visual effects shots in it than Titanic. All right, that was Brian Fuller and Michael Green. You can find new episodes of American Gods on Stars every Sunday. If you're a fan of showrunners, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice. This episode was produced by Steve Parkhurst and Brad Fisher. On our next episode, I speak with Prentice Penny, the showrunner of Insecure. Until then, keep binging. Keep binging.